Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Van Ingen. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we will read On the Mystery of the Incarnation by Denise Levitov. Abram, would you be willing to read this poem? Absolutely. On the Mystery of the Incarnation. It's when we face, for a moment, the worst our kind can do, and shudder to know the taint in our own selves, that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature, vainly sure it and no other is godlike, god out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. That is beautiful. Thank you. Denise Levitov knew something about the worst our kind could do. Can you fill us in a little bit about her background? Yes. What an interesting life she led. She was born in 1923 in England to a father who was a Jewish emigre from Russia. Her mother was Welsh. Uh, She came of age in an era of poetic incantation. That's what Evan Boland said about it. And so when when she says that, she's thinking of poets like Dylan Thomas. As a child, she was part of a political family. She and her family protested against the rising tide of fascism in Europe. They housed refugees of the war. And then during World War II, she served as a nurse in England. And then shortly after, she moved to the United States with her husband, And early in her poetic career, she was deeply influenced by the poetics of William Carlos Williams. And then later in the 1960s and 70s, she became a very politically engaged person. She was regularly involved in protests against the Vietnam War. And with fellow poet Muriel Ruckheiser, she founded an organization called Writers and Artists Protest Against the War in Vietnam. And she was arrested and imprisoned multiple times for her actions. And so her poetics is really varied and complex, but that more political poetry was a kind of poetics of witness. And some of that later work up through the late 60s into the 70s received mixed critical reception, precisely because some critics bristled at the idea of explicitly political poetry. But she was very committed to causes that she cared about. And then interestingly, in the 1980s, she converted to Christianity. And I think that those things are really important to understand as we read a very small poem like this, because as you say, you look at those first few lines and look at what she says. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves. Well, what is the worst that our kind can do? When we shudder, we are apprehending or perceiving something that is so horrible that it's it's almost beyond language. And that seems useful to think about because, of course, she, even though she's not explicitly saying it, that kind of language is almost an umbrella expression for two world wars, the threat of nuclear war, ecological catastrophe, all the things that she was deeply committed to and invested in. I want to pick up on one thing you said in that biography of her in in the sense that she was deeply influenced early in her career by William Carlos Williams because mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of ways that I see William Carlos Williams at work in this poem that it, 
It's a poem that's one short single stanza long. It feels pretty plain spoken. It's it's got I would say more complicated syntax than than Williams often used, but it's still pretty. All the words are pretty simple words. And at the same time, it, it also feels like it's taking William Carlos Williams's observations in a different direction. What do you see happening in terms of her relationship to, to the poetry of William Carlos Williams? Well, maybe I can rely on Denise Levitov to answer that question. She has a very famous essay called Some Notes on Organic Form. And so in this essay, she's really trying to explain very carefully where unrhymed verse comes from, where verse that doesn't follow a prescribed form comes from. And this is what she says. The beginning of the fulfillment of this demand to create a poem that is inspired by experience is to contemplate, to meditate, words which connote a state in which the heat of feeling warms the intellect. That's nice. I like that. Mm -hmm. To contemplate comes from templum, temple, a place, a space for observation marked out by the augure. It means not simply to observe, to regard, but to do these things in the presence of a god. And to meditate is to keep the mind in a state of contemplation. Its synonym is to muse. And to muse comes from a word meaning to stand with open mouth. Not so comical if we think of inspiration, to breathe in. So that's Denise Levitov's quote about where such a poem comes from and how it takes shape on the page. Well, I love that. And one of the things I love about that is this relationship between the intellect and the heat of feeling. And we have this line in the poem early on that that's talks about something that goes beyond the mind itself. So it's, it's, it's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves. At that moment, that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart. And there's almost a sense here of the the mind left to its own devices for kind of hardens or produces its, a kind of shell around itself and that it needs to be cracked open in order to reach the heart at various places. That something greater than logic, something that, that is best approached through awe, is the thing that can really open us up. And of course, cracking the shell is that image of opening us up. And of course... The Mystery of the Incarnation, which is in the title, is is something that is, by its very nature, illogical. So the, the Incarnation, just quick religious literacy, is is the, the moment that, in Christian theology, when God becomes a human being, which, on the surface of things, doesn't make any sense. The God, the, the being who supposedly created the entire universe, becomes a part of the universe as a human being. There's a kind of way in which the mind just is not adequate to the task of thinking about that. But that's not really what she's talking about in these lines, which is so interesting and, and where this becomes a very distinctive kind of take on the mystery of the Incarnation. We haven't even gotten to the Incarnation in this poem by the time the mind's shell is cracked open. All we've talked about in the first four lines is just how awful human beings are. One thing that occurs to me as I, as I look at these lines is that Part of Levitov's concern with what she calls organic form is how form takes shape in an automatopoeic way. And she doesn't literally mean that an experience has to take the exact shape of the sounds that it represents, but that it does have to be attentive to sound. So look at what she does there in line three, that awe 
cracks the mind shell and enters the heart. So awe, what a great word to end that line on. So line three ends with awe. It's such an open, long sound, which feels important to that word and important to the experience of feeling awe. You know, it sounds like what it is. Aww. Well, you have to open your mouth like you do in musing that she talks about below and tied to inspiration. It's just an open sound that turns suddenly with that word cracks in the next line. Yes, and cracks is another automatopoeic word. It sounds like what it is. And then that allows me to think about the experience of that boundary between the mind and awe and how it's broken. So maybe we should move to the next sort of turn in this poem. We've got those first four lines down, and then there's a colon, and then this this series of negatives, not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature, vainly sure it in no other is godlike. Maybe we could just pause on that, right? What I see her saying here is human beings have this this notion of being distinct from the rest of creation, the other animals, the rest of nature, and so on. And yet what the rest of nature has going for it is that it has a kind of innocent form. You you wouldn't blame a flower for doing what a flower does. You wouldn't blame a dolphin for doing what a dolphin does. There is no guilt associated with the rest of creation. Really what makes human beings distinct from the rest of creation is the possibility and really the experience of sin, guilt, and all of the associated horrors that go with them. It feels important that she's chosen a flower and a dolphin because in some of the books and articles I've been reading recently, I've been learning a lot about plant life and how social plants are. And by that, I just mean how they lean toward each other, how they share resources, how they protect each other. And then I've been reading a lot about how animals communicate with each other. And for much of my life, I was convinced that humans having language was one of the things most distinct about us and so special. But the more I learn about how animals communicate, they have so many different kinds of articulations that are so sensitive to their environments and to each other that when I read not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike, we as humans are vainly sure that no one is as like God as we are. But in fact, that that's our vanity. That's that's one of our many sins, isn't it? And I feel like it. it's a passage that really draws together well two distinct moments in early Genesis that does this sort of godlike business. So in Genesis 1.27, and this is this is really important to, to Christian theology in general and, and Jewish theology too. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. This, this idea of being made in the image of God becomes really important. And people glom onto that and say, well, human beings are made into the image of God. And often it's sort of held apart from this sort of interesting parallel passage at the moment of the fall in Genesis 3, when the serpent is in the garden and says to Eve, you're not going to die if you eat that fruit. And this is is what the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So the idea of being like God is both this wonderful thing, God created mankind in his own image, and this temptation, this moment in the fall that the serpent says, you know, if you eat from that fruit, you'll be like God. And, And a lot of ways of understanding the fall are the 
the sort of vain assurance of human beings sort of making themselves into gods. And I think what's so interesting about this poem is that she's she's basically saying, well, God could have come as any of these innocent forms. And what's what's most mysterious about the incarnation is not the incarnation itself. It's that God chose to come like this, this awful form, this form that has shown an ugly failure to evolve. And it's human beings vainly sure of themselves. The, this is the creature that God chose to take this form. That's the real mystery of the incarnation. Wow. Okay. Before we started recording... We were talking about that word choice of ugly. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. And we were trying to understand, well, what is, wh- why ugly? And of course, ugly can be about appearance, but it can also be about behavior. And we were just talking about how ugly can refer to something that's just horrible to apprehend. And I think that word ugly goes back to the shuddering to know the taint in our own selves. You only shudder in the face of something horrible. And the horribleness is ourselves. And if Denise Levitov was born in 1923 and died in 1997, she was able to see the better part of a century that was ugly and and truly horrible. Right, right before you get the end, to the end, you might think of this as a, as a sort of Lenten and Easter kind of poem, <laughs> more so than an Advent and Christmas poem, because it really it launches from the experience of sin, failure, the worst our kind, the shuddering at human beings. But it also, I think it's important to note that it, it's not just that the, the worst our kind can do as though our kind is out there. It's the taint in our own selves. So so she's looking internally as well as externally. There's this awareness that drives the poem of her own failures and her own falling short as well that I think is, is an important sort of backside to this awareness of the, the failures of others. And yet we're the ones that God entrusts with the word. I and mean, he doesn't just entrust us. He entrusts us as a guest, as a brother. Her word choices are pretty extraordinary here. Every single line has a surprise in it. And I think it's worth pointing out that even when we think about that quote you read on contemplation and how she arrives at this moment in her life when she's writing on the mystery of incarnation, all of her life she was sort of interested in spirituality, generally speaking, not necessarily Christianity, but 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 spirituality, generally speaking. And so her poetry is, in a certain sense, in and of itself, incarnational. And this is this is a quote from her colleague, Albert Gelpi at Stanford, who called her way of perceiving the world incarnational in and of itself. That is to say, it, it exemplifies what the catechism defines as incarnational and sacramental, discerning in the outward world visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. And so I think there again, you see this sort of careful attention to the world leads to this experience of contemplation and meditation that pulls out from the world some kind of awe that goes, in a certain sense, beyond the world. And and I think she was having these experiences and feeling this way and exploring these kinds of things even before she became a Christian. So, Joanne, with all we've discussed, would you be willing to read the poem for us again? Yes. On the mystery of the incarnation, it's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves, that awe cracks the mind shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, 
not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike, God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. Lovely. Thank you. On the Mystery of the Incarnation by Denise Levertov comes from her book A Door in the Hive, copyright 1989 by Denise Levertov and used by permission of New Directions Publishing Corporation. For more on Denise Levertov, please see our website, poetryforall.fireside.fm and please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening.